0: All right, so good evening, so we were able to pull it off, I made the copies in time, we're here at 7 o'clock, everything is good. All right, All right. at least we have a happy book, so that makes me feel better about the whole thing. mcgillat root is just one of the all-time classics, uh, it's a very happy thing, for one thing, there's no bad guys, there are very few biblical books where there's not a bad guy. Next week when we do Esther, there will be a bad guy, there, and there are lots of other bad guys who accompany him. Here there are none, there are excellent people and regular people. Which is an unusual sort of phenomenon, right? You have the excellent people of Boaz, Naomi, and Root, Then you have regular people, or Pa, Boaz's foreman, this anonymous guy at the end who doesn't want to marry Root. They just do what normal people would do, including Maklona and Shiri. They're also normal. Well, and anyway, let me let me go. And so that's actually one of the exciting things about this book. It makes it so good. Where, where's that little stash of, of we should have enough somewhere? Maybe I'm sure Shelly sure gets okay. it. Okay, we're good. The classic midrashic source that everybody likes to quote in this situation is Rabbi source number one. Rabbi Zeira said, "The scroll of Ruth tells us nothing either of cleanliness or of uncleanliness, either of prohibition or permission. For what purpose then was it written? To teach how great is the reward of those who do deeds of kindness." that's what it's all about everybody's just so nice they feel good it's so idyllic everybody does the right thing everybody lives happily ever after the general gist of the story if you haven't read it recently is that it starts off sad right? there's, some, there's a famine and so Eli Melech and his wife Naomi their two sons go to Moab the two sons Machlon and Kilion marry Moabite women Ruth and Orpah ten years or so go by all of a sudden the menfolk are all dead Eli Melech Machlon and Kilion are dead and now you have the three women All bereaved. It's very sad. Then Naomi decides it's time to go back home to Israel. The daughters-in-law decide to accompany her very faithfully. Naomi says, no, you'll never find a shidduch in Israel. Forget it. They don't like Moabites over there. You're better off staying right here. No, we'll really come with you. A little back and forth for a little while. Finally, Orpah says, you know, you're really right. So she stays in Moab. And then Ruth clings to Naomi. She says, there's no way. I'm coming with you. And so they go back. And they're destitute. And so the way that you earn a living if you're destitute in a, in a farming Israelite society is that there are mitzvot to farmers to make sure that poor people are able to get their food. The way that you do it is you have to leave a corner of your field unharvested, let the poor people get that. There are various tzedakah that you give, and one of them, which is critical to this story, is gleaning. Gleaning is where the beggars follow the reapers. The reapers are busy harvesting, and if they drop stalks, Those stalks can now be picked up by the beggars who are trailing along with the hopes of getting something. And hopefully you'll even get, hopefully you'll even get enough. Fortunately, as the story will have it, Root chanced upon the field of Boaz, and becomes the male hero of the story. And Boaz is incredibly generous, wonderful, lovely, filthy rich, all of the good things put together. And that helps. He takes care of Root. He immediately takes a liking to her. He finds out that she's connected to Naomi. It turns out they're family altogether. He takes care of Root and Naomi through the whole harvest season. Then Naomi decides to move the plot a little bit along, because obviously Boaz hasn't done much by way of proposal just yet. So he needs a little push, like many men folks sometimes do. And so Naomi sets the whole thing up. And has Root lie at Boaz's feet at the harvesting festival. Boaz is drunk, he's in a good mood, He just pulled in a great crop, everything is looking good, and she's supposed to wait, but she doesn't wait. She just says, basically, marry me already. He says, great idea, but there's some other guy, there's another family member who's a closer relative than I, and therefore he has dibs. But if he says no, I'm happy to do it. So we all are a little puzzled at that point, because it's like, okay, there's one of these easy ones, where you know he's going to say yes, and he does, but he wasn't supposed to say yes, but... That kind of puts a damper on the way that this whole thing is going. But Boaz makes sure that this other guy, Plony Almoni, which means Joe Schmo, he's left anonymous intentionally, that's what it means, the anonymous one, he's let, he declines. And now Boaz marries Ruth, they have a kid whose name is Oved. And Oved becomes the father of Yeshai, and Yishai becomes the father of David. And David is the very last word of the Megillah. So all of that is great. It's one of these happy things, and we all understand it's because Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were so wonderful, and God is smiling on the whole thing, and the townsfolk are happy, and you know it's it's a real feel-good narrative. I I love it, and there are very few narratives where you feel that great the whole time, other than the first few where everybody just dies, or at least the male folks all die, huh? I'm not taking that away, but that's quick. And then the rest of the story is the recovery in a very happily ever after sort of way. And everybody's so nice. It's all very, very, very good. Now, I think that what I just said is basically an excellent summary of Megillat Root for five minutes. That's really a good way to describe the plot. It's riveting. It moves. Everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And so far, so good. And again, as I mentioned, the regular people are just regular. Nobody is bad. I mean, Orpah stays home. But honestly, she, it was the right move if you want to find a shidduch. Ruth was going to have a hard time finding an Israelite husband. She got lucky with Boaz. But that wasn't the odds-on favorite thing to happen. The odds-on favorite thing to happen is that she would be a beggar her whole life and never marry. And that would be it. She had a better future in her homeland, in Moab. So she is the superstar, or Pa was a regular person who just wanted to look out for her interests. There's a four men of Boaz in chapter 2, which just sounds like a regular guy who is this woman over there? Oh, that's Ruth the Moabite who came from Moab, just in case you don't know where Moabites come from. (laughs) And the logic is, the logic is that's how the Israelites viewed her. She was the outsider. She was the Moabite. She was a foreigner. And we have a particular animosity toward Moab, that nation. They did some harsh things to us in the past. And so she was just on the outs and everybody understood. She's called the Moabite seven times in this tiny little story. It's a way of drumming home. The characters are very conscious of this detail. Boaz, when he goes over to speak to Ruth, It's just root. Boaz said to root. There's no root the Moabite. And you get this sense of, wow, here's this man who sees her for who she is, He's not thinking about the Moabite thing, and not only that, he's impressed by her chesed, by her incredible generosity in accompanying Naomi. And so from that point of view, Boaz just stands out as this all-time superstar man and the foreman is just a regular guy. He's not bad. He's not putting Root down. He's not doing anything untoward. He's simply acting the way that the regular Israelites acted. Even the fellow at the end who refuses to marry Root, the fact is there's such a stigma against Moabites. I'm not surprised that he said no. But that just makes Boaz shine. Right? Once again, Boaz is standing out there as this incredible, incredible man. And Naomi, honestly, besides my own mother-in-law, was the best mother-in-law who ever lived. Right? Naomi is a tremendous mother-in-law. I mean, think about this. She is destitute. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. It's really tragic. It's horrible. Her daughters-in-law are saying, we'll come with you, Mom. And she really needs their help. You know, as it turns out, Ruth is going to take care of Naomi. She has no means of sustenance or anything. It it would be good for her to have her daughters-in-law around. And yet she looks out for them ahead of herself. She says, you're better off here. I would love for you to come with me. But you're better off here in Moab. You'll find a shidduch. You'll have a life. Come with me. Your life is over right now. That is an incredibly generous act. And so basically, these three characters shine as unbelievable, amazing, amazing, incredible people. And kind of you get the sense of divine help all the way through. And this is what it takes to produce a King David. Right, the most beloved figure in our entire history. And here you have just, it starts off as a regular story, but then the last word links it to the national scene. Until then, it could have been anybody. The other players don't matter, really, in the global scheme of things. But David does. He matters quite a bit. He is one of the most important characters in all of Tanakh, and certainly the most beloved. And you all of a sudden feel the sense of, wow, talk about great providence, that these lovely, loving people who just stand above the crowd. And everybody else is fine. That's what it takes to produce a King David. So it's a very good feel-good narrative. So I just covered the first half of my title, right? The Book of Ruth, Feel-Good Narrative, or Ambiguous. Ah. So then comes the ambiguous part. You can easily go through your whole life reading the Megillah the way that I just told you. And honestly, it's a good reading. I don't think I've left out any critical details. I don't think I'm hiding from you what really goes on in Chapter 2 or something like that. It's all there. It's, It's really very straightforward. What actually captured my attention back in the day I was a rabbinical student yet, was a series of midrashim that poked holes in my very pure, wonderful read that I just presented to you and made me at least go back to the text again, which is what good midrashim are supposed to do. Any good commentator is supposed to do that. Read it again. Just make sure you really read it right and make sure there's no other way to read it. And lo and behold, they decided and convinced me that there's another way to read the story too, which isn't dark, don't worry, it's not awful, but it's different from what I just told you. And that's what tonight is going to be about. So we'll start, we'll go through some of the key texts of Megilat Ruth, the book of Ruth, and we will see different ways of thinking about the major players and the major events that occur. So we start with the very beginning of the book, source two. In the days when the chieftains ruled, there was a famine in the land And a man of Beit Lechem in Judah, with his wife and two sons, went to reside in the country of Moab. If you like puns, there are some really fun ones here. Like, for example, what does Beit Lechem mean, the town? House of food. (laughs) So it's nice that there's a famine in the house of food. And then they go to Moab. Now here it's not a pun, but there's a reason why there's such a severe stigma against Moab in the Tanakh. And that is because they're famed for their stinginess. They didn't feed the Israelites when they were crossing the wilderness. As a result, you can never marry them. So the idea that here are Israelites, Judeans, going from house of bread, where there is no bread, to stingy land might be important, and several commentators think that it is. I like the literary stuff that's going on. The man's name, verse 2, was Elimelech, His wife's name was Naomi, which means, you know, Elimelech is a wonderful name. You know, my God is king. It's a beautiful, righteous name. Naomi means... Pleasant, pleasant, right? Pleasant, it's a good one. And their two sons, Machlon and Kilion. And what do they mean? Uh, Sickness and disease. Oh, lovely. You could just imagine at the (laughs) Brit Milah, Elimelech gets up... Thanks, his, thanks God, thanks his wife, who's the big hero in all of this, as we all know. And then, and I'm naming my son sickness and destruction after their late grandfather. No, I mean, what kind of name is that? So, there are two possibilities, honestly. One is, it doesn't mean sickness and destruction at all. They're perfectly normal names. Salafchad, if you remember the man in the desert who died, he had daughters. One of them was Machla. It doesn't mean sickness over there. It has more to do with Mechila, or Forgiveness. Kilion likewise can come from kala, which means completion. In which case, they're perfectly lovely names. Or they do mean sickness and destruction, and they're literary names. Right? These weren't their real names, but they're, they're dead by verse five. So let's give them some literary credit for dying. Let me just give me a chance to develop all. Okay, I love questions. Let me just get a chance to develop some stuff, and then we will hopefully have some time for questions in between. A third possibility is that they are nice names and that our sages already read in the sickness and destruction part, because again, they die so fast, it's very easy to see that. Be that as it may, they might not be these horrible names, but they might also be literary names describing what will happen to them within a moment. Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah, they came to the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then those two, Machlon and Kilion, also died. So the woman, meaning Naomi, was left without her two sons and without her husband. It's very sad. All right, let me just ask you this. Is there a divine cause of the deaths, or did they just die? Just not? Mm-hmm. The, text the text doesn't say anything. Well, maybe because they married the... Um... Oh, so Maybe they married Moabites, or maybe they left the land in the first place. Yeah, maybe they left the land in the first place. So our sages really go out on this one, because it's tricky. You have this situation where it doesn't say, God smote them because they did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, then I wouldn't be asking the question. We would just read it and say, that's how it goes. Here, there's nothing describing... Just give me a moment to... Let me just develop the whole situation. There's a moment where they're all dead quickly and we being good readers of the Bible are used to these things often happening for a reason and that triggers a whole midrashic line of interpretation pertaining to they left the land maybe they left the land and should have been helping the poor, these were wealthy landowners over there, they should have stayed behind and helped everybody else note, everybody else stayed behind it's not that the whole country migrated over to Moab right then, right so everybody else is fine being in Belechem so why did these guys go? So there's something negative, perhaps, from that point of view. And then you have the intermarriage thing. And that's one track. You will find the sense of divine, looking for divine causation. The other track is, no, we don't know how old Ali Malach was when he died. He could have died of old age. Machlon and Kilion were married to Ruud and Orpah for over ten years before they died. If the whole point is that they intermarried and God struck them down with that lightning bolt, don't wait for their tenth anniversary party. Kill them right away. And then we understand. Okay, they married Moabites, dead. Right? That's not what happened here. The fact that there is a delay suggests that there's no reason to read anything whatsoever into this. The text doesn't say anything, and we shouldn't even think that, there, that there's a divine causation behind it. I mean, God is ultimately responsible for everything. But there's no sense of punishment, in which case this is background. That's how Ibn Ezra reads this. This is background. The point is we have to quickly fast-forward, get these men dead, because the story is not about them. It's about the women. So, And it's about specifically how these women react to this terribly tragic situation. So don't belabor the point. They're dead. We don't know why. It's not even interesting to the author of the Megillah. And now we can tell the story. So there's two fully good ways of reading this story. And you should know, you could read the whole Megillah this way. You could read it as, well, why does everybody live happily ever after at the end? It could be divine reward for their exceptional acts of kindness toward one another. Could be. Or it could be. We don't know what God's role is, and the people just did good things. And when people do good things to each other, that means that now they're doing better. There's no necessary sense of reward and punishment in the story either. Okay, so you actually could read, you'll find for yourself when you go through the Homei tonight after we're done, or at least by Shavuot, which is when we traditionally read it, that you could read this whole thing as sin, punishment at the beginning, chesed, reward later on, doing mitzvot and reward later on, Or you could say divine causation is totally in the background in this story, and there's simply no way to know what is God's role or why these things are happening. But people did good things to each other, so there is a happy outcome, and we should thank the nice people of the story rather than thank God. There's a third possibility. Always third possibility, yeah. It's part of a greater plan of God. Okay, I I, I would say that that's a fair read of anything. I'm just saying what I'm interested in. What the text? You're right. Theologically, of course, you're right. I'm interested in, what does the text say? So I'm telling you, you can actually read the text both ways. Yeah. With all the texts that she experienced, Naomi changed her name, as I heard it, to Amara, which means daughter. Yep. You're right. So this, this showed how needy this old woman was, and how very good, how unusually good, her daughter-in-law was. Here. I fully agree. There's no question that these points are correct, but indeed, Ruth is incredible, and Naomi didn't change her name in some legal sense in going down to City Hall and filling out forms. She just told her friends, call me bitterness because I'm I'm having a tough time here. She lost her husband and her son's. I don't blame her for feeling very bitter. Some recent articles try to liken her to a Job character, and they find literary parallels. Because again, she's not suffering because people are sinning. She's suffering for no reason at all, as far as we are concerned, and so... Nebuchadnezzar is very, very, very sad. Okay. Well, it out Indeed. 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 They're amazing. And, and we're going to keep on talking about that amazingness. Okay, then and comes the part that, you know, I paraphrase a lot of this stuff. I want to look at a couple of the key verses where Naomi tells her daughters-in-law that, you know, she says it's time to go back after the famine. She tells her daughters-in-law, stay here, you're better off here finding a shidduch, finding a, finding a husband. And they say, no, we're going to come. And then Naomi piles it on. If you look at source three, may the Lord grant that each of you find security in the house of a husband. And she kissed them farewell. They broke into weeping. And she goes on and on and on. Finally, Orpah breaks down and goes home. And then Naomi is like, okay, one down, one to go. So she said, see, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Go follow your sister-in-law. And Ruth says her all-time heroic line of, "No, I'm saying with you wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God is my God. Your people is my people. I'm with you. I'm in for this for the long haul." And so Naomi says, "Okay, great. So come." And so they they go together back to the land of Israel. So what motivated Naomi to tell her daughters-in-law to stay? What motivated her? Huh? She's looking, out for their She's looking out for their welfare. Okay, now here we have a very important, correct. Here's where we have a very important literary feature that runs through all of Tanakh. It's a very important distinction that needs to be made. Naomi says exactly what Charlie just said. And I believe her. There's no reason to doubt her. But the narrative doesn't fully corroborate her either. There's a big difference whether the narrator said, and Naomi, looking out for her daughters in law, said, and then quoting her, in which case we understand that is the perspective of the book or whether it's a character saying things, allies. I always, read, when I, read Ruth, I always read that part of saying she didn't want the responsibility of having to find them husbands. Go, leave me alone or anything. I have done what I could. I don't want, I want the responsibility of having three daughters-in-law for whom I have to provide husbands. Correct, not only husbands, but food. Well, she does say, you can't wait around for me to have another... Child. Right, she's saying that there's no way you're ever going to get married. Your only hope would have been a child of mine, and I'm not going to have any more children. And even if I were to have a chil- child in hypothetical terms, okay, so now he's an infant and you're adults, what are you going to wait? That's her argument to them. You know, She really goes for it, and she's making very solid points, which is why Charlie is right. At her word, she's solely looking out for their interests. Just tell them to go. But then she'll to, to remain in Moab. Oh. In other words, they're still in Moab, and Naomi is saying, I'm going back to Israel, you guys stay here. So, there are different midrashim, however, that take different slants. Source number four over here, Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni says in the name of Rabbi Yudah bar Chanina, three times it is written here, turn back, meaning she tried to dissuade her daughter's in-law three times over to return, corresponding to the three times that a would-be proselyte is repulsed. But if he persists after that, he is accepted. Halachic man midrash comes into play. I love halachic man midrashim. Here we have a literary story. I I don't know that Naomi is thinking rabbinics at this moment. In other words, it's a very emotionally charged scene, right? I mean, think about it. They all love each other. She's saying goodbye, and I'll never see you again, and you'll never see me again. We all understand they're not going to have FaceTime. This is really it. It's a parting of the ways. And this midrash derives from this the laws of conversion. The idea being that you want to test the sincerity of a prospective convert. So you dissuade them three times, because Naomi tries to dissuade her daughter's-in-law three times. And if they still persist, that demonstrates sincerity, then you accept them. So the idea is, since she tried to dissuade them three times, and Orpah left, you see, she wasn't as sincere as she thought she was. Whereas Root stuck around, oh, Root is a good convert. That's how the Midrash is thinking about that. From this perspective, what's motivating Naomi, even if this is a halakhic man Midrash rather than an interpretation of our story? What's motivating the Midrash? Could be choosing. What's, not what's motivating the Midrash. What's motivating Naomi? She's identifying with Israel. Good. Okay. Yeah, Sherry, Two, she cares. Four, three, she's afraid to be alone. But you're, you're saying your own things. I'm she saying, cares. what is this midrash? You're, you're, all these things are fair motivations. What? Is, but within this text, this within this source, Pauline, you were going to say something? No, I said the kind, huh. the kindness. Kindness. kindness and religious sincerity. Right? In other words, if she is thinking about, wait a minute, you have to understand this. We love each other, but there's a religion that I belong to. And I'm going back there, and we all belong to it. If you come with me, You have to fully adopt this religious lifestyle. It's not just a family bond that is in play. Now, for the record, even though it sounds like a halachic man midrash deriving halachot, laws of conversion, on a text that's not a legal text at all, you should understand that this motivator is actually in the text. If you go back to source 3, verse 15... This is what we just read a moment ago, in Source 3. So she said, see, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Naomi, in the text, is conscious of the fact that staying in Moab means you're not sending your kids to a good yeshiva day school. right? She understands that staying in Moab means you'll find a pagan husband, you'll raise your children pagan, and that will be the end of any connection we ever had. So Naomi, in the text, is thinking about the religious component of it. It's not just a midrash that's Superimposing a halachic terminology onto the text. Yes, Naomi is not necessarily following the laws of conversion, but the religious aspect of it is something that's on Naomi's mind in the text as well. So that's a motivator that isn't looking out for her daughters in law welfare and finding a husband. It has to do with the religious component, which doesn't detract from the welfare thing, yeah, David? How come they different You're raising a very important point in general, which is that even the reader takes a while to catch on that there's a field in play. It's not till chapter 4, the whole book is four chapters, and the last chapter is when we learn that Elimelech had owned a field and Boaz is now going to redeem it for Naomi, and suddenly Naomi goes from being beggar to wealthy landowner. This is a big move, this redemption of the field. It changes her life, literally, permanently. So it's interesting that this is not on the table in this conversation at all. And it's not even on the table when Root goes out to beg. There's no sense of oh, you know, if we could just get a family redeemer, you won't need to go glean every day. You could just get we can we can have our own field and just hire some workers to grow crops. Okay, let me, let me, let me just I take it a little. About where they are, geographically. geographically, they're having this conversation in Moab as they're about to go back to Israel. Read, 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 just read. You have to read the whole chapter. The source sheets are incomplete in that regard. Read the chapter, but that's, but that's where they are. Source 5 then jumped out at me back in the day when I started really going through collections of Midrashim. And Source 5 is a totally different thing, which borders on what Elias was saying before, but it even pushes it further. Why did Naomi want to return them? so that she would not be embarrassed by them. We find that there were ten markets in Jerusalem, and they, the classes of people who shopped at each, never intermingled. The people were recognized by their clothing. What one class wore, another would not. Wow. That's not the Naomi that I know and love. She's not a bad person in this Midrash, by the way, but she's not a superstar anymore. She's thinking... The marketing strategy. You never say, I want to sell you my wa- I sell you a watch so that you will have a nice- w- You don't say, so that I will make money, which is a perfectly honorable thing to do. You know, I'm gonna s- I want to sell you this watch because you really need this watch. Right? That's- You're not gonna sell any watches if uh, you say, you're, I want to make money. If, uh, okay, yes, everybody understands that's what business is going to do, but that's not what marketing is good at, right? So this midrash is basically saying Naomi is a marketer. She's saying, oh, stay in Moab, it's good for you what she's thinking says this midrash is i don't want these people around me at all they're moabites they're cl- they're going to be the bottom of the barrel in my society and i'm a princess i'm nobility i don't want to be associated with these people at all so you can't say that because that might hurt their feelings so what you do here is you say you'll never find a shidduch you gotta you gotta stay here it's good for you this midrash doesn't buy naomi's words this midrash is saying that Naomi is looking out for herself more than she is looking out for her daughter's in-law. And this opens up a range of possibilities when you go through, the, when you go through Megilat root, and you should try it yourself again at home. One way to think about the whole story is, if you follow this midrash, that everything Naomi does is that she's manipulating all the pieces to make sure that she wins in the end. And boy, does she win in the end. She really brings it very well. She sends root to marry Boaz, but David's point is the right point. We don't know that. Oh, there's a field in play. We think that she's oh she's looking out for her daughter-in-law to get a shidduch. and she does. But then the field is back, and suddenly at the end of the story, if you read it, Boaz and Ruth get married, have this child obeyed. But who's holding the baby in the final, in the final, when the closing credits come in? Naomi is holding the baby, surrounded by her friends. Everybody says a son is born to Naomi while she's sitting in her hammock in this wonderful field that's been bought back. Now again, I want to stress, there's nothing wrong with any of this. This doesn't make her a bad person. It's okay if she's looking out for her own interests. Right? But that's different from her talk. Her talk is she's looking out solely for her daughter's in-law, and later on solely for Ruth, because Orpah is gone. And what this midrash is saying is, read the whole story and you will see, Naomi is pulling all the right strings... You could disagree with it. I'm just saying. You could read the whole Megillah this way. You really can. Try yourself at home. This this is the projection of the person who's given the explanation. Human beings are not black and white. I understand. Agreed. Agreed. Fine. But wait. but, But what I want to say is that up until a moment ago, meaning before this midrash came along, I thought it was... I don't like using black and white because it implies that white is good and black is bad because that's usually how these terms are used but I'm not criticizing you that is how we use the terminology but up until this moment Naomi was purely excellent and I had no problem saying that even though I normally do think of people as more complex but in the Miggy Loud, Naomi sounded purely excellent as does Ruth as does Boaz and all of a sudden she now sounds she's still helping Ruth don't get me wrong Ruth wins the game also she gets married she has a baby she's doing fine too but the motivator, according to this midrash, is that Naomi was rigging things for herself. One of the fun features of the Megillah, if you read it again at home, you will see, it's kind of interesting. Naomi and Boaz never talk to each other. Naomi talks to Ruth, but Boaz talks to Ruth, Ruth is the go-between. Naomi always knows what Boaz is going to do next. She has them all figured out. She's like, tonight, you know, clock strikes right midnight, this is where he's going to be. You go there, everything will work out. But they never actually communicate with each other in the entire story. But that sets up Naomi as, okay, she's rigging everything and she does a great job. She ends up winning the game because she's manipulated it that way. Or, ignore what I just said entirely. Wrong, she's a great balad chesed, reject this midrash and say she's religiously motivated, take her at her word, in which case she's a superstar. Or, make her mixed. Right? Say that both are... Make her human Right, That's what I love about this kind of midrashic play. But you actually can, and you could again, try it at home. Read the midrash one way in the pure way. Not the midrash. Read the text of Megillat Ruth, of the Book of Ruth, in the pure way. It's all there. It's so pure. Read it in this way of saying that Naomi is rigging everything, manipulating everything to win at the end, and you can read it exactly very well, without having to bend anything. If you had to bend, then I would be a little more skeptical... Of this kind of reading. So this starts making me think maybe the text is doing this intentionally. And but wait, there's more. Let's talk about our major superhero of the entire saga, and that is Boaz. Boaz is truly great. You know, he shows up on the set, you know. Rud just came, chanced upon his field to beg, Boaz shows up, everybody, so religious, right? You know, God is with you, God is with you, great. Now let's have a story. And now we open up with source number six. Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose girl is that? Hey, who's she? I never saw her before. The servant in charge of the reapers replied, this is the foreman that I was talking about before, she is a Moabite girl who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Okay, so right away, once again, as I mentioned in the outside before, now we can see it inside. This is how the regular Israelites viewed Root. She's a Moabite. And so for them, she is the outsider. There's a great big, big deal of distance between them and her. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reaper. She has been on her feet ever since she came this morning. She has rested but little in the hut. Okay, at the end of the foreman's report, she's a hard worker. Then Boaz strides on over gallantly to root and says, Boaz said to root, and again, I mentioned there before, it doesn't say root the Moabite, but he's not viewing her as a Moabite. Listen to me, daughter. Not a great pickup line, honestly, but... (laughs) Uh, the reason why he calls her daughter, by the way, is it's a generational thing. This is how they refer to some. She is significantly younger than he is. So this was a perfectly normal way of reply to speaking to her. It doesn't in any way speak of a relationship of that kind. He could still marry her in the end, and, and there could still be a good, you know, loving relationship from that point of view. Daughter simply refers to the big age gap between Boaz and Root. Listen to me, daughter, don't go to glean in another field. Don't go elsewhere, but stay here close to my girls. The Midrash exploits that. He doesn't say, stay close to my workers, because he doesn't want her with the menfolk, because maybe he'll, she'll fall in love with one of them, or one of them will fall in love with her. Stick with the girls. And then when, it's not in you know, source sheets, but at the end of the chapter, when Ruth comes home to Naomi... So what happened today, Naomi asked, well, I chanced upon this field of some nice man named Boaz who took such good care of me, and he said I should stay close to his workers. She says workers. Mm -hmm. And then Naomi, who remember, at least in a technical sense, didn't overhear the conversation that we just read, say, it's Boaz? Wow! Baruch Hashem, this is good news all around, stay close to his girls. (laughs) She also, you know, her light bulb goes on. So she and Boaz are thoroughly in sync. You in know, Boaz wants her to stay away from the menfolk and just maybe he can have attention, shower attention on her. And Naomi is thinking, here's our savior. So, you know, don't, don't fall in love with anybody else. We need we need Boaz. We need, to, we need you to find Boaz. And that's the way it's going to be. But Boaz right away stands out as being incredibly not into the Moabite stigma. He treats her very, very well. And then there's Beverly. A quick question. Does um do we know if um, Naomi knew about Boas? Because you said he um, randomly wandered to this to Right. She didn't say why. Hey, we have a wealthy cousin right. down the block. Go to him. So Things She didn't will read this part. She didn't. That part really was quote unquote by accident. Uh-huh. The text even says by how you correct You know that, that she chanced upon that she chanced upon the field. So we might say this is a divine coincidence, which it probably is. But all the same, by Iker Mikreha, the idea that as fate would have it, as chance would have it, she... So that was not rigged at all. Once she comes home that evening with a lot of grain, and I'm going to explain why in just a moment. Naomi's I mean, like, wait, were you gleaning or did you rob a bank? <laughs> like, how do you get all that grain? Gleaners don't get that much stuff. I mean, the reapers are not trying to drop a lot of grain. They want to provided for the owner of the field. And so if, by chance, they drop a few stalks here and there, all right, everybody drops a few stalks here and there. But she comes back with a good sack of grain, enough to feed herself and Naomi and have leftovers. The other beggars, believe me, did not have that kind of, that size of a meal. They were happy to just have a morsel of bread or of cake or whatever they did with this stuff, just roasting the grain even, some sustenance, but really bare subsistence. So, yeah, what Boaz does in the, in the following in the following scene, you know, the rest of chapter 2, is he, first of all, he just treats, you know, Ruth says, how come you're treating me so nicely? Why are you speaking to me with any respect at all? I'm an outsider. Source 7, Boaz said, well, Source 7, before the verse that I have over here, Boaz says, I heard what you did for Naomi. You're amazing. May the Lord reward your deeds. May you have a full recompense from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. May God reward you for your amazing chesed. It's such a beautiful line. And the whole point is that Boaz respects Ruth as a woman of Chesed, that she's a true, kind, dedicated, loyal person. And Boaz says, you know what? You're so wonderful to Naomi, I'm going to be wonderful to you, and may God be wonderful to you too. And you're smiling away. That's why it's such a good book. It's so nice. It's it's really so wonderful. But Boaz does, that's what he does to her face. What does he do behind her back? He tells his worker, make sure to drop handfuls of grain. And and you men, don't you dare harass her. right? He protects her. He makes sure that she gets lots of extra help. He even invites her to eat with the field workers, which is a much better deal than eating with the beggars. There's bread over there. There's nice pita and vinegar. There's popcorn. There's all kinds of good stuff, which you don't get when you're a beggar. But he treats her with a lot of respect. So both to her face and away from her face, he's helping her, which is why Naomi was like, whoa, 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 what's in that bag? There's too much. And then when she finds out that it's Boaz, all the light bulbs go on. It's really awesome. Not only that, but when Ruth then in the next chapter sleeps at Boaz's feet and proposes, and Boaz replies in Source 8 over here, he exclaimed, "'Be blessed of the Lord, daughter! Your latest deed of loyalty is greater than the first, in that you have not turned to younger men, whether poor or rich. Now, daughter, have no fear. I will do on your behalf whatever you ask.' For all the elders of my town Know what a fine woman you are What a terrible translation The Hebrew is Eshed Chayil And you should know That Ruth is the only woman In all of Tanakh Who actually is called an Eshed Chayil Besides the typological one In the book of Proverbs That we might sing about On Friday night Depending on our custom But that's, that's a typological woman It's not talking about a person Right? Here we're talking about Ruth She's the only one Who is called Eshed Chayil That's a very nice thing For Boaz to say So fine woman doesn't I don't know Even just do woman of valor would be better. Like, you know, do this standard old translation of, that's better than fine woman. It's a a, a very nice thing that Boaz says. So here you're cheering away. Boaz is great. Happily ever after. What a gallant man. Plony Almoni, the anonymous guy who declines, we understand why he declines, but Boaz, oh, he's willing to marry the Moabite and not even think of her as such. Here's the man. He deserves her. She is the nicest person on the planet, Ruth. Boaz is the nicest man on the planet. What a great Shidduch. What a happily ever after the end. It's great. And then you you, uh, read one Midrash that shakes you up a little bit. Rabbi Isaac commented, source number nine. The Torah teaches you that when a person performs a good deed, he should do so with a cheerful heart. If Boaz had known... Oh man, they're going to beat up on poor Boaz now. Terrible. (laughs) If Boaz had known that the Holy One, blessed be He, would have written of him that he gave her parched corn, he would have given her fatted calves. In other words, Boaz is like, oh, let me take care of you. Here, have some popcorn. Now, honestly, it's very generous. It was He treated her very, very well, and she was very moved by the whole thing. But this midrash says, why didn't he give her veal? So poor Boaz, you know, everybody's having a hard day. It's like he's so generous, he's so lovely. Why in the world does this midrash beat up on him at all? Now, you could just say again, I don't know what its issue is. It's trying to teach... I, the lesson is a good one. We should do things with the whole heart, and we should do things as though we knew that a biblical book would be written about us. I think we'd all do better somehow. And that's what this midrash is trying to teach. They beat up on... The other person they beat up on, who also, it's astonishing, is poor Reuven. When they're about, the brothers are about to sell Yosef, you know the drill, Reuven is the real hero of the story. He heroically says, let's throw him in the pit, and the whole plan is rescue. He's a real hero, and if you understand that he's the firstborn who lost his position to Yosef, he looks even better. And then the same Midrash, same passage, just, um, we're talking about Boaz tonight, says, Had Ruven know that the Torah was going to talk about this story, he would have carried Yosef on his shoulders right back to Yaakov. He wouldn't have just come up with this little trick. So poor also, I feel for him for so many reasons, but now I have another reason to feel for him. Right, down the tubes he goes, as the Midrash criticizes his Not doing what he could have done. And the same thing with Boaz. Now, the first time I read this midrash, I was horrified. It's a midrash, I can't be too horrified, but I couldn't believe it. This is the nicest man in the world ever. In a story where they're so nice and so wonderful and so excellent in every way. And Boaz is such a knight in shining armor type. It's all the good stuff. What's up with this midrash criticizing him? And then you have to ask at least one question. You know, you know what Have you ever gleaned? <laughs> Hard work. Yes. And, good for you. So you're ahead of the game. Gleaning is really, really... Huh? Glean the capable. Okay, that's cool. So gleaning grain, imagine this, 12 hours a day with no sunscreen, going row by row, hoping and praying that the reapers might drop a few stalks, and then you have to pounce on them before the other beggars get to it. Not to mention, you're usually subject to all kinds of harassment. Boaz had to protect Root, but these beggars were totally defenseless. This is an awful thing to do. And this story occurs several months. It's several months long through the entire harvest season. The question is so Boaz treated Root much better than any other beggar. But why does he make her beg? Every morning, she could just come and he could just hand her a bag of grain, save her the trouble. And that's already a really good question, actually. And maybe that's where this midrash is pointing. The midrash is pointing to the fact that Boaz talks so generously because he is so generous. And he's treating root better than anybody else would treat, treat root. And he's treating root better than, anybody, than he treats anybody else. But is this really as excellent as he sounds? He's making her still beg day by day by day by day. And of course, the real answer is, why does he want her around there begging 12 hours a day? Because he probably wants to marry her. He probably wants to marry her, and if he just gives her the bag of grain, this will not be good for dating prospects. She'll say thank you. She'll go home, eat, and then she'll go play backgammon with her buddies, right? And then she won't be with Boaz. Boaz wants her around. He wants to observe her. Huh? wants to observe her. You know, see like, really, she is as she seems. It could be. It could, it, but whatever it is, she now has a terrible, terrible life for several months. It's better than any other beggar in the country. Because Boaz is making sure that she's treated better, she's protected, she gets more grain than any other beggar ever. It's incredible, but she's still begging. So, what this midrash is saying, you know, it's very nice to give her popcorn and all, but, you know, Boaz could afford better. And Boaz doesn't have to make her beg. Okay, so you're saying like Shelley, and, and you could well be right, that Boaz wants to make sure she is as wondrous as, as, as the story goes, yeah? Sherry? Basically, I was going to say that he doesn't know her, that, that he also is a long-established picture, picture, that he may have had other instances, and again, I'm getting a little into this, obviously, okay. but there, have been, there may have been other instances, man or woman, who... Seem to be destitute, who it turns out maybe were the the, you know, it's basically took advantage of it. So, in a sense, he's sounding her up, call it, if you will, the uh, probationary period. But, like any two individuals, they have to get to know each other. Maybe two months or whatever months, maybe too long. But again, it's a product of the circumstance and what her background was. Good, fair enough. And maybe that's what's going on over here. It still seems strange, and this Midrash is at least pointing to another possibility, which is Boaz is great, greater than anybody else in that society, and he's treating her well. Nobody's going to say that he's being abusive. He's not. He's being very wonderful to her, and she appreciates that. But is it really as grand as his words are? Once again, we have the same thing with Naomi. Naomi speaks the grandest words imaginable. Do her actions match those grand words? That's what these Midrashim are busy exploring. And now there's another Midrash, which picks it even further. There's a Midrashic method, which I'm sure we've come across in the past, but I'll just review it. They very often, in the world of Midrash, they will link the obscure figures with the known figures, and that gives three-dimensional character to people who are otherwise incredibly obscure. So if you read the Book of Judges, you will find that one of the judges was a man named Ibsan, one of the less-known judges. Yvtsan, not Yvtach. Yvtah is known. I'm saying that there are these people who have, we know almost nothing about them. This Yvtsan was from a town called Beit Lechem. Read the book of Judges, chapter 12, you will see him. He's there. He's from the town of Beit Lechem, we know almost nothing about him. Now, when you have somebody like Yvsan from Beit Lechem in the time of the Judges, and we know nothing about him, the sort of Midrashic move that you might expect when you get used to this sort of thing is let's link him to some known figure in Beit i like Boaz. And lo and behold, the Talmud does that for us. Source number 10. Ravah, son of Rav, said in the name of Rav, Ift'san is Boaz. So, hooray, that was an easy one. But now they say, well, what does he come to teach by his cut statement? In other words, they're not doing this as a game just to identify the obscure with the known. They're trying to teach something about somebody either about Yitzan or more likely about Boaz. And here's how it goes. Boaz made for his sons 120 wedding feasts. For it is said... Now you have to remember that they're just identifying... We don't know how many kids Boaz had. We know he had this one in the story. But Yitzan had 60 children. Not bad. And think about what the day school bills are going to be for him. <laughs> but but in the, maybe there's a discount when you have that many. But in the meantime... So that's what that this Midrash is playing off of. That. The only thing we know about his son is that he had 60 children, 30 sons and 30 daughters. Here it goes. So Boaz made for his sons 120 wedding feasts. Well, how do you have 120 wedding feasts if you only have 60 kids? The answer is you have to make a party for each one of them at your house, but you also have to make another party for them at the in-laws. Every kid gets two wedding parties. So that's, that's the 120 over here, Okay. For it is said, and he Ibtan, had 30 sons and 30 daughters he sent abroad, and 30 daughters he brought in from abroad for his sons, and he judged Israel for seven years. Okay, so that's the 120 feasts. And in the case of every one of these, he made two wedding feasts, one in the house of the father, one in the house of the father-in-law. To none of them did he invite Manoach. Who is Manoach? Shimshon's father. father. Good. Now that's in chapter 13 of the book of Judges, meaning it's right after Yitzhak. So, Iftan and Manoach were roughly contemporaries. We don't know exactly when Boaz is, and we don't need to factually identify Boaz with Iftan. But the Talmud here is riding with the idea that Boaz is Iftan. Iftan has 60 kids, so Boaz is making a lot of wedding parties. And he never invited Manoach, Shimshon's father. Why not? For he said, Whereby will the barren mule repay me? hey, he doesn't have any kids at all, I'm never going to get a reciprocal invitation from him. So I'm not inviting him to my parties. That's not the Boaz that I know and love. So this Talmudic passage is going out of its way to beat up on Boaz. First, it has to link him with somebody else altogether. If Tsan didn't do these nasty things in the text either, it has to create this whole cycle of what Boaz is doing. That He didn't invite... Manoach, when will the barren mule repay me? Because as you know, as the curtains open up, Manoach and his wife don't have any children. And the angel shows up, and Shimshon is born, and I love telling that story to my kids. It's out of control. It's like an amazing, you know, this total superhero situation. But at the time, he was a barren mule. All these died in his lifetime, meaning that Boaz lost his children. They all died within his lifetime, which is the supreme worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. None of this is in Tanakh at all. But what is this Talmudic passage saying about Boaz? That's what I care about. What's their read? What's this sage's read of Boaz's character? He also wasn't as great as Black and White Certainly not. And specifically, when does he do chesed? When he, has when when he gets something in return. That's what it's saying. Correct. It's not, again, it doesn't make him a bad person. It makes him a regular person. A regular person who is going to do nice things for people as long as he knows that he'll get a, something in return. Maybe he's more astute. In it, as other st- words, he's not going to get stung twice by right, anyone. Correct, but 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 it's that the point of the Talmudic passage is that he's. Well, I'm happy to do something nice for you, but I expect that you will do something nice for me in return. If I don't think that you can do something nice for me in return, then I'm not going to do anything for you, Joe. I'm the poor, the sugar a what? So far, actually, nobody keeps commenting on the big. You pointed out earlier there's a big age difference. You know, here's not married; he's this young girl. Notice he doesn't, you know, hit upon Naomi. You know, like she's closer age. She ain't done that, but he goes for the younger one. So that's his personality. Right, and and so exactly right. So now again, there's nothing bad about Boaz wanting to marry Ruth, and he takes very good care of her, and he takes very good care of Naomi. Nobody's going to say that he's a bad person. He's a wonderful person. But the question is, what's driving him? The simple reading of the Megillah is what's driving him, is that he has a huge heart. What these Talmudic passages are saying is, wait, he actually didn't stop Ruth from begging. He went on for months, and had Ruth not proposed at his feet, this could have gone on for many more months, we don't know. Everybody's getting antsy at that point in the story. And he won't do something unless he knows he will get something in return. Meaning this could explain why he kept her around. Not only to check her out and make sure her character was good, which I'm sure he also was doing. But it's also in part because he wants to marry her. And by the way, one interesting comment going back to source number, we have read it already, source number eight. It's very interesting that Naomi's whole cell for why Ruth and Orpah should remain in Moab as they'll never find a shidduch in, in Israel. Meaning, Boaz is a su- surprise. But look what Boaz's perspective is in Source 8. He exclaimed, Be blessed of the Lord, daughter. Your latest deed of loyalty is greater than the first, in that you have not turned to younger men, whether poor or rich. As far as Boaz is concerned, Root never would have had a shidduch problem. Right? She would have easily found a younger man if she so inclo- desired. But she chose to stick to Boaz. What's the act of loyalty that he's talking about? It's not loyalty to Boaz. To it's loyalty to, it's yeah. loyalty to her deceased husband. Okay. Mahlom. In other words, she wanted to marry a relative mm-hmm. and create this family bond rather than just getting married. She just, It's not a halachic yibum situation, as we all understand. That is for a real brother-in-law. There's no brothers-in-law in play here. But there's a societal yibum, leveret marriage, that clearly is taking place in this story. That Boaz and before him, whoever this anonymous relative is, they have a pecking order if you want to go that route. It's a voluntary thing. So the fact that Ruth would rather marry the relative, so that way the field is in place, they can have a child which is in place of Machlon. It's loyalty to Machlon, the deceased husband. So Boaz is blown away. It's like, wow, you're going to marry old me instead of the younger men right all over the society. As far as Boaz is concerned, Ruth never would have had a problem getting married, and he actually is shocked that Ruth chooses to marry him, which means that she wants to pursue this type of lever at marriage. So to summarize the three things that we've covered so far, God's role in this whole story is incredibly ambiguous. Whether there's a sin, punishment, chesed, reward going through the whole narrative is possible. And it's equally possible to say, folks at the beginning just died, background, and the whole rest of the story is a set of circumstances because the people helped each other. When it comes to Naomi, you could read her as the purest, nicest. If you take her at her word, she's phenomenal. If you take her, maybe she's motivated by something else also. You can make a case that she's at least in part orchestrating things to help herself, which again is not bad but it's no longer that sense of pure generosity. And the same thing with Boaz. At Boaz, you could read him as purely generous and unbelievably gallant, or you could read him as, in part, he does things for you when he's going to get something in return. In this case, he took care of Ruth because he wanted to marry Ruth. He wanted her to stay around. He gained also from this whole thing. And the question is, of course, how to balance these motivations. There's no way to know. All I can tell you is, read the Megillah, you will see each one of these readings is fully there. I like that. I like the fact that no stretching required for any of the readings they are all visibly in the text, and you could, these midrashim are not out of nowhere. They're perfectly fair ways to read Boaz. Also, and I imagine the best answer is always going to be, complex portrait, right? That they are truly wonderful people, but they also are looking out for themselves, Naomi and Boaz. And that brings us to Root, one of the all-time greatest people who ever lived, as far as I'm concerned. Root doesn't have that ambiguity, when Ruth joined Naomi, she had nothing to expect other than never getting married and begging. And it was the way that her career starts in Beit Lechem is the way that she probably imagined she will die. Nobody's going to marry her. Her mother-in-law just told her that. I believed her for a long time until Boaz thought otherwise. Now I'm not sure anymore. But as far as she's concerned, she has this Moabite stigma hovering over her in a big way, which is certainly true, and she has to beg, which is terrible. And okay, she got as chance would have it, she came into Boaz's field. But it could have been that she would have ended up with some regular guy's field, and it would have been awful. She'd be harassed, she'd be fighting with other beggars, she'd be lucky if she got enough sustenance for herself, let alone for herself and Naomi every single day. And that's amazing. The fact that she was willing to commit to Naomi and to God and to the people of Israel, knowing that she had nothing at all to gain by doing that. This is a sensational act of loyalty to Naomi originally, but also to God and to the people of Israel. And the praise that she gets from Boaz is actually astounding. If you look at source 11, this is not the praise she gets from Boaz, this is God speaking to Abraham Abraham, at the very beginning of Abraham's career. The Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, which is a big, big deal, right? He has to drop everything and go to a different country. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So it's God orders Abraham out of nowhere to do something very difficult, but with many promises of blessing. You understand that God didn't command Ruth to do anything. And look at what, when Ruth says, how come you're treating me so well? Source 12, Boaz says in reply, I have been told of you, uh, excuse me, I have been told of all that you did for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and came to a people you had not known before. Sounds like Boaz is thinking about Abraham. You left your land and your family and everything to come to a land that's not yours. And she was doing it for God. But look how much better Ruth is, by contrast, not to put down Abraham at all. He's one of my all-time favorites as well. Uh, Ruth wasn't commanded by God to do anything. This was voluntary. And she wasn't expecting blessings. God promised Abraham a lot of blessings in exchange for this difficult commandment. Ruth has no promise of anything other than, you'll never get married and you're going to have to beg. From this point of view you understand why she has to be called the Asian Khail. She's the only person who's ever called the woman of valor in the entire Bible. That's really an amazing really an amazing feature of her. So let's summarize the two reads of the text and wh- how you could understand both of them. One read of the text is the reading that I started with in the first 6 minutes or so tonight. That there are three spectacular characters in our story. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz. They're all Superhumanly amazing, and they're to be contrasted with the regular folk. And then either, since these people are so spectacular, God rewards them, or since they're so spectacular, they help each other and everybody wins. Naomi is saved in the end; she has her field, she's wealthy, she has her friends back. She's a, she's kind of like a grandmother; she's holding the baby. Everything is looking great. Ruth wins in the end; she's taken care of by wealthy Boaz. Boaz is lovely. She has a child who turns out to be the grandfather of King David. Everything is great. Boaz comes out on top. He married the person he wanted to marry. Town is thrilled. Everybody's looking so happy. Everybody's singing the praises and blessing all of them. It's a happily ever after situation. That's one way of reading the story. And that's what produces a King David. The other track is uh, the people who are the best that Israel has to offer at that time. Boaz and Naomi are great but they're not nearly as great as they say that they are about themselves, right? They're looking out for themselves and just know how to talk the good chesed talk. But Naomi is rigging everything in her way, Boaz is rigging everything in his way, and Ruth essentially is a pawn in the game. She wins in the end. This pawn turns out she turns into a queen. Everything looks great, but she is more manipulated by them, and she ends up. On top, because, thankfully, what was in their interest was also in her interest. From that point of view, you have this final Midrash over here in source number 13. She left the place. Why did scripture include her leaving and arrival? God said, May Ruth, who was a convert and did not contradict her mother-in-law, come and rebuke Israel who have rebelled against me. This is an amazing Midrash when you think about it, because in our story, the Jews are not rebelling, unlike the whole rest of the book of Judges, where they certainly are. Here the Jews are very nice. But this Midrash is putting its finger on something very important. You may recall from the book of Judges, which we did like last November October, meaning not even the most recent last, like a year ago, October, November, at the very beginning of this series. It's terrible. People of Israel are intermarrying. They're assimilating. They're worshiping idols. Enemy after enemy is coming. It's a total disaster. How are we ever going to break out of this cycle? So if you ask the people, the answer is, we need a king. If you ask the prophets, well, we need to repent. But what this Midrash is saying is, yeah, we have to repent, but we need an outsider who can teach us what real chesed is. Because the people who are the best, nicest people in the society, not the wicked ones, the nice ones, like Naomi and Boaz, they're okay. They talk a good talk, huh? It's a bit like Jonah. The people of Nineveh... Correct. ...are repenting and are doing the right thing, whereas the you know, of is People of Israel... Are not co- the correct. Cards, correct. So here the, the idea... Very good. It's a good analogy also. that The book of Ruth is trying to teach on the second reading that Ruth had to come from the outside. Here's a Moabite, somebody from a stingy nation, a pagan. And her dedication taught the people of Israel what real loyalty is, what real giving is. Because the people of Israel, even the giving ones, they gave when they got. But Ruth shows up and says, I'm going to give it all for God and for my people. That's where King David comes from in the second reading. You still needed Boaz and Naomi's help, or nothing would have gotten off. But the second reading says that you had good people who still looked out for themselves, and Ruth was a stellar, out of control, great person. Yeah, Dr. Glazer. There's a midrash of that variety. Yeah, so would that be punishment <clears throat> Yeah, but again, it's not in the text. In other words, I don't know if he died the next day or if he died 30 years down the line. We'll never, that we'll never know. But what I will tell you is that I think it's a great book. I think having these two dimensions really is something that makes the book come to to life, both on a simple level, but also I think there's a whole other level. We are out of time, so let me call it a night. I'll talk to you after. Uh, so next week we're doing the book of Esther, which again, as I, as I preface, I usually don't like breaking from my order. It should be the Book of Lamentations next week. That's what we're up to. But but there's no way with Purim right around the corner that I'm gonna stand on that ceremony. We're doing Megillah. Next time, mark your calendar. Two weeks from today, we will do Lamentations. Looking forward, talk to you.